Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're getting a mid-year multifamily market update. There's been so much going on in the world of alternatives and especially the world of multifamily this year. It's been in the news, even the mainstream media, let alone the investment media all year long. And with me today, I have Scott Hawksworth, the co-founder of multifamilyinvestor.com, as well as the Multifamily Investor Podcast. Scott, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for having me. And so, Scott, you've sent me five or no, six links today that we are going to cover, uh, just kind of talking about what's been going on uh, since the first of the year in, in the multifamily market. And, and it's like, wow, I, I can't believe we're talking in, in early June 2022 and it's like the first of the year seems like a lifetime ago uh, in terms of the investment <laughs> landscape. Uh, but I did have time to look through these articles that you sent me. And, and for those of us who are, are watching the show on YouTube, I'll have them all on screen so you can follow along with the screen share. If you're listening to the show uh, on a podcast platform, you can always refer to our show notes at altstb.com. Uh, we'll list all of these links there. But with that being said, Scott, Let's start with the first link. So I'm on multifamilydive.com and this article is titled Supply Chain Backups Postpone Apartment Openings. So what's going on here, Scott? Sure, Andy. So, you know, with multifamily, um, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, so not all bad, not all good. And we're kind of starting with the challenges here. When we look at the larger economy, I mean, you look around, you look at this inflationary landscape, ongoing supply chain challenges. Um, multifamily has not been immune to this. And so that's really what this, this first article is, is talking about. And when you are considering multifamily, whether it's ground up or a value add, um, you know, the supply chain, the materials, really do matter and they impact things in, in a pretty significant way when you're trying to open new apartments, when you're trying to renovate. And you know, from this article, um, I just want to read this. In February, the apartment completion rate fell to the lowest level since 2016. And that's according to RealPage. And the number of authorized but not yet started projects rose 31% year over year in March. And obviously, these delays create backlogs, headaches, and cost overruns for contractors and developers. And so what you see right again, uh, right there, Andy, is there's this desire and this need for housing. Um, there's this need for um, new units. And the supply chain issues are causing these delays. So there's this investor interest, but um, kind of navigating that. And, and when you look at it, even if someone has hired a third-party manager for the project, they're having issues with, for example, if you have a ground up development and uh, and you're trying to get all the appliances in there and it's, well, we, we can't get all the refrigerators because of the supply chain. So that pushes everything back and they can't hit their targets. Um, in this very article, it talks about how 
uh, third-party managers are having to call up Home Depot and and say, hey, you know, what do you have? What can we do here to get these uh, to get well, these appliances I, I, in there? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm imagining uh, you know a, a contractor driving to one Home Depot and picking up one or two appliances and then just going, you know what, I'm going to make the circuit and hitting all like in a major urban area, how many Home Depots are there, you know, 10, <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Just, just, just hit them all. I mean, at some point you're probably thinking, I don't even care if these appliances match unit to unit, as long as they are kind of in the wheel general wheelhouse of, you know, whatever quality level I'm trying to hit. Uh, because once you have the unit 90%, you know, 80, 80%, 90%, 95% completed, boy, is that going to be a pain if you're just waiting like, well, I'm just waiting on this uh, washer or this dishwasher. Uh, but oh, that's going to be 90 days. And uh, so now I can just pay the mortgage uh, for 90 days. Well, I can't rent out this unit. I mean, that's, that's, that's like, that's terrible. That's, that's terrible. Huge, and huge and you're, you're looking, you know, for these projects, um, you know, all the investors are like, okay, so when are we going to stabilize? And so this is just pushing everything back, um, which does create some challenges, um, you know, with that, with those projects, with, um, you know, again, paying that mortgage. So again, this is, this is something that multifamily has not been immune from supply chain. I'd even mention value add projects. Um, I had someone on my show um, and he was talking, his name is Brian Ponal, and he was talking about how they have a great value add project that they were working on. And what they were trying to do is upgrade the Wi-Fi for all the units there. Mm -hmm. And as part of that acquisition and that renovation, they were quoted uh, a certain price for all of the routers. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, there's going to be a delay on the routers and guess what? They're more expensive now. And those kinds of unexpected expenditures and delays really do uh, eat into the uh, the whole project timeline. And this creates a lot of challenges. So overall, this is where the most significant impact of the supply chain issues has been hitting multifamily. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, even with the value add, it's going to affect the, the pro forma, right? That you made certain assumptions on materials and components uh, and labor uh, but 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 honestly, whether we're talking about value add or ground up development, it, time has to be the the biggest the biggest <laughs> the biggest time bomb, right? Exactly, is, is time. So okay, I have to pay fifteen percent more for labor than I thought. You know, some of the components you might be paying double what mm -hmm. you thought. But but when you average it all out uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's that's probably not going to affect. Uh, the financials quite as much as I'm going to be delayed 60 days or 90 days or, you know, 180. Right. Our, we, yeah. We are, it's now much longer to get to our occupancy targets and stabilize there. And that's, that's the most significant piece um, that we see. Interesting. Okay. Anything else on, on this article, Scott? I mean, the only other thing I would add is specifically for those value add projects, there is a piece uh, when you consider the rents, because if you're trying to renovate units and really kind of bring that property up to uh, current standards and what renters would expect, and then you want to be able to charge rents to meet that, uh, if you don't have the materials to make those improvements, uh, well, then you're again going to be delayed for when you can 
do those rent increases and say, yep, uh, we're, we're charging this now because look at what all the upgrades we added. So, I mean, I think that's another significant piece. Yeah. I mean, financially, I feel like that's going to affect your model at both ends because, mm -hmm. because on the one hand, you're going to look throughout your model and your input costs are all going to be higher than probably what you projected um, even a year ago, certainly higher than what you projected 18 months ago, you know, depending on when, when you modeled it. But on the other hand, uh, probably the rent that, you know, your pricing power as a landlord with rent and, and just market rents across the nation. And, and then we'll talk about specific geographic areas. Um, those are probably up just as much, if not more than labor and materials in, in your model. Right. So that, that, that probably ends up, you know, being close to a wash, I would guess. I mean, it, it depends, but, but again, the time thing, that's, that's kind of the, that's the nightmare scenario is when it's just a delay and you can't do anything about it. Right. Um, and then you're, you're having to send those, uh, those emails out to investors that uh, you never want to send. <laughs> well, there's this project's delayed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the second article, Scott, on wealthmanagement.com. What do you, what do you have for us here? Yeah, Andy. So the second article, you know, the headline is, um, that multifamily values are increasing faster in the suburbs and smaller metros. So that's a little bit more location-based, and we'll, we'll cover that in a bit. But one of the biggest elements of this article is talking about um, the values of these multifamily assets. And we've seen cap rate compression, which has been ongoing really for 18 months or more. And a lot of folks are saying, you know, when is this going to end? And a lot of folks are also from the investor side or the developer side, um, you know, questioning, okay, um, what are these, are these cap rates worth it? Are these overvalued? And the fact is, is that we've also seen rent rates increasing at a significant rate, really unprecedented in a lot of ways. And well, well Scott, yeah. And sorry, before we even get to the, the underlying fundamentals, I just have to comment here. Sure. Go ahead. In, in the article. Uh, I, I quote the RCA commercial property price index, the CPPI for the apartment sector climbed 23.6% year over year in 2021, the highest increase on record, 23.6% year over year. That is flipping incredible to have a 23 0.6% year over year increase in a sector like multifamily, which when you think, at least when I think multifamily, I think stability and resilience, you know, not in like necessarily every nook and cranny, you know, there's value add and opportunistic and all that sort of thing. But you think about a very stable and sort of resilient sector. Right. Absolutely. Don't think about one year where prices increase. 23.6%. I mean, that's, that's incredible price appreciation in one year. And, and as you were, you were uh, alluding to, of course, that's going to compress cap rates. I mean, it's, it's unlikely that NOI is going to increase 23.6% also year over year. But, but before I interrupted you, I, th I think what you were getting to, though, is that a lot of investors think the fundamentals 
actually do support this. And I mean, there's really two sides to that, right? You could say the relative fundamentals, because when I'm looking for value, I can always state it. It's a, it's a relative value, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like the stock market is a relative value compared to the bond market, but in absolute terms, is it a screaming value compared to, you know, 1935 PE ratio? Probably <laughs> not. So there, you know, a relative value uh, or absolute value. Um, but according to this article, there are fundamentals underneath this uh, that don't make that price appreciation as crazy as it would seem you know, at, at surface level, because when I, when I, when I hear 23.6% year over year, I think bubble. And, and right. You think, you think, okay, that's not sustainable. <laughs> well, yeah. What you're saying is, you know, it's not necessarily a bubble. Right. Because, um, and I'll, I'll just directly from this article, just to throw some numbers at it. So January recorded solid multifamily rent gains this is according to the Yardi matrix with the average us asking rents rising to a record 1604 per month which is an increase of $8 per month and then year over year rent growth increased 13.9% wow. a new high and up 30 basis points over december um, wow i mean Scott, I, yeah <laughs> i'm sorry to interrupt again so the year over year rent growth basically 14% i mean that's just incredible when you when you think of a um a working class middle class uh, you know uh, individual uh renting an apartment what does that do to their personal inflation rate it's like wow no wonder the cpi is eight and a half percent if rent you know the place where you live that's going to be obviously the, the largest component or one of the largest components of that cpi calculation um that's 14%. So that's not quite, it's not 13.9%. I'm, I'm comparing that to 23.6% year over year uh, price appreciation for the CPPI. It's not quite the same, but already it's like, okay, a big chunk of that price appreciation is covered by the year over year rent growth. And, and let's remember that, you know, it's, it's not, you can't raise rents overnight right no. uh, depending on the asset depending is it uh is it stabilized is it ground up is it you know is it value add so there's probably some more rent growth that's already sort of assumed to be occurring in the next 12 to 24 months right and andy one thing i'd add to this too is is just how we've seen these increases it really has impacted uh the the timeline for many of the folks that hold these assets. Um, I had uh, a man by the name of Jason Yarusi on a recent episode of Multifamily Investor, and he was talking about how they were looking at some of their properties and uh, their timeline was accelerated significantly. And they, they realized, you know what, we actually need to start looking for an exit here uh, much earlier than we anticipated, um, which is a good thing. And, you know, handing it off to someone else who can, uh, you know, Just take because, that property to the next be, level, be, but because they, because they met their NOI targets or their price appreciation target. Exactly. And they're, and they're looking at it and saying, well, I guess this, you know, according to our models, it's it's time to exit. So um, so then if now. you if, if you are planning an exit in year six and instead you exit into year two or year three, 
what is that going to do to your IRR on that deal? Like after the fact, I mean, that's going to, the IRR is going to show 40% or 50% instead of, you know, 13% or something crazy like that. So I think some of what's going on is investors are seeing these uh, IRRs that are occurring because of a lot of these very profitable exits. And they're saying, whoa, <laughs> this, this sponsor got a 35% IRR on this asset that they just, and it's true. It's real. It's, 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 you know, it's totally real data that that is the true IRR. And I think investors are looking at that and that's what, um, you know, that's part of what's attracting, you know, continued capital into this segment is that it has performed so well recently, but again, back to the fundamentals, uh, you know, normally, when you see something like that, I'm thinking, you know, roller coaster, what goes up must come down, rubber band effect and all that. But we still have this massive housing shortage across the United States. And so as long as there is that mismatch, that huge gap between supply and demand, speaking personally as an investor in multifamily, that's what gives me confidence is yeah, even if cap rates have compressed, just that underlying dynamic is not going to change anytime soon. That's 100% correct, uh, Andy. And and that's really what we've seen. You know, We've seen these rising rents and, and people think, well, can, how can this continue? Well, the demand for this housing is not diminishing. Um, it's still there. And, and specifically when we talked about certain property types, like class A properties and I don't want to steal again our thunder about uh, a lot of the movement we've seen, but a lot of folks, you know, with sort of uh, working from home a bit more and sort of this rise, they're they're saying, you know what, I still have demand for you know this quality, this quality property, this class A property with all these amenities, and I'm okay with these higher rents, or or I have no option but to pay these higher rents, and so I think that that really is a factor. And so from the investment standpoint, yeah, you can look at all these numbers and as exciting as they may be, that can cause a little of a uh, concern. But again, the underlying demand is still there. And the one thing I'd also add, Andy, in terms of um, you know, folks out there, you know, having acquisitions right now, even if the cap rates are compressed, there are still lots of opportunities. For example, if there's um, an asset and there's a, a favorable tax abatement uh, that can be had that makes uh, an investor say, you know, wow, I'm actually willing to maybe even in theory seem like I'm overpaying, but the benefits uh, on the back end there are going to be so significant, it's going to be worth it. So I think you really look at these assets uh, individually and then as a whole. And you know, no matter what, where we're looking at in the country, uh, the fact is, is that uh, this growth has been tremendous. And so investors are, are, are still seeing, hey, there's a mismatch between supply and demand. Uh, there's still a lot of opportunity here. And, and whether it's an exit or whether uh, someone is coming into a, an asset at this point, uh, clearly there's, there's still a ways to go, it would seem. Yeah. And, um, you know, within this article, you know, I, I would note that real estate is local, right? And so the article goes into, there's a little bit of uh, a difference between, you know, mid and high rise cap rates versus garden style cap rates. Those have moved a little bit differently. And we've also seen 
that these larger markets, you know, your premier cities, uh, New York City, LA, some of these larger cities compared to smaller cities uh, or suburban areas. And it's actually been the suburban areas and these smaller markets that have outperformed. And so the article talks about, um, you know, millennials and generation Z's quote migration to space. Yes. They're, look, they're looking for larger units and smaller cities where there's more room. And, you know, I guess that describes me um, <laughs> guilty as charged. Okay. I am a millennial. Don't hold it against me. Um, and so the strongest growth in multifamily values last year occurred in non-metro areas. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm going to highlight this here on the page. Uh, CPPI for apartment assets in these smaller markets was up 25.1% year over year versus quote only a 10.7% year over year increase in the six major metro areas. And, and again, a quote from the article in normal times, the 10.7% year over year pace of growth would seem fantastic. Uh, but, but then you compare it. <laughs> right. Right. And, and anyway, so I think that's actually a good segue, Scott, to this third article that you sent me from Wall Street Journal, the great pandemic wealth migration. So we all know that there's there's been uh, a migration uh, to, you know, from some of these states on the West Coast or in the Northeast to the uh, the smile states or the Sun Belt or the southern states or red states or whatever you want to call them. Um, but this article had some more detail about tax considerations and some other things like that. So what do we have here, Scott? Sure. And, and this was just such a, a fantastic article because I think that you can talk about sort of general movement, but then you have this, this absolute migration of wealth. And uh, this is latest IRS data, and it shows the movement of taxpayers and income you know, from these high tax states is accelerating. And a lot of it focused around the uh, the salt deduction um, that the the cap that was placed on the salt deductions um, in 2017, and this has accelerated since that point. So uh, the the article kind of spoke to uh, a lot of folks, uh, Democrats and in Congress and and otherwise, are looking to see how they might be able to even potentially repeal that because the losses are so significant for some of these states where folks are migrating from. And I, I remember that that was a part of the whole build back better conversation where they were trying to, uh, you know, work the work, some more salt relief um, back in. I mean, it, frankly, Scott, I was shocked that that ever passed uh, to begin with. And so I, th I think that's just going to continue to be a bone of contention in Congress for the foreseeable future. And then especially when we're looking, um, you know, at all of these states who are the losers. And here's a list, New York, California, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey are the top five losers, top five biggest winners. We have Florida, Texas, Arizona, North Carolina. South Carolina. I mean, every single state in this list of winners is a smile state, you know, pr pretty much in the Sun Belt. Um, well, and, and Andy, to jump in here, you know, I came across this article because uh, I do live in Chicago. I do live in Illinois. Um, I uh, I am affected by the tax burdens uh, of, of my city and state. And so when I see that, when I see Illinois there, the loss 8.5 billion, 
Um, I kind of think about that and I say, interesting, Illinois, you know, proposing increased uh, taxes, increased property taxes. That's, uh, you know, well, Illinois and that's has- the thing. That's the thing, Scott, is, is, you know, the, the salt limit, you know, that's a political football, but I think some of these states seen out migration have these larger structural issues, uh, whether it be underfunded pension obligations uh, or just uh, other obligations. General just, budgetary messes. <laughs> right, it, it, exactly. So, you know, we, we can we can see the politics here, but, you know, what's what's the fallout for multifamily investors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obvious. You listed it right there when you mentioned all the different uh, states. When you look at where multifamily investment, um, much of that activity and development is centering, it is on those smile states because so many people are moving from you know these these larger metros, your New Yorks, your Chicago's, and elsewhere, and they're they're wow. looking beyond. Got them. Look at Florida. I mean, my good, it's, it's just so interesting to me because I hear so much about Texas as well as Arizona and North Carolina, but I'm looking at this graph right now and Florida is just like an outlier. I mean, even compared to Texas, um, which is a lot of people migrated to Texas in the past two years, but Florida is just like, wow, that's making my jaw drop. I guess we're going to, we're going to get there on another link. Some, some of the some of the fallout from that. Uh, but I guess Florida is just the, the most popular state. Um, I, I don't know if it's Disney World or the weather or what. Well, it's a lot of it's a lot of factors. Andy. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're talking financial here and we've kind of focused on sort of the tax implications and certainly um, folks, you know, wanting to protect their wealth and, and those kinds of moves. But then you look at the, the differences in, you know, pandemic restrictions. You look at the ability um, to work remotely, folks saying, well, I can maybe even keep this Chicago job, but not have to pay Chicago. Right, but uh, but why Florida, prices? right? Because that would be that would be the case in in Texas or or Arizona as well. So I mean, a, a lesson for me is just that Florida in particular is just like white hot. But I, I want to actually put a pin in Texas because the next article that you sent me was about Texas. So. Even though Florida may be, according to this article, and this article is about the uh, largest net gains of adjusted gross income from migration. So the Wall Street Journal, this is just talking basically how much of your tax base uh, is migrating out of states like Illinois and into states like Texas and Florida. But this next article that you sent me, Scott, um, pertains to multifamily specifically. And Dallas Fort Worth is killing it. They are leading the nation in multifamily investment for now the fourth consecutive quarter. Wow. Which is incredible. It's incredible. And um, uh, of course, Jimmy Atkinson lives in the uh, Dallas Fort Worth area. And uh, I've chatted with him about this as well. And uh, you have seen this, this, Un, unstoppable investment seemingly uh, continue in Dallas Fort Worth, and so much of it is driven by this migration we're talking about, by uh, folks looking for lower cost of living, going from a, a place with a state income tax to a place with no state income tax, um, going from a place that maybe has some brutal winters to a place that doesn't really have uh, brutal winters. 
all of this development is really focusing on Dallas Fort Worth again to to reference Jimmy because we we spoke about this you know he's he says he drives out of his uh his you know he drives out of his driveway and drives around town and he can't he can't turn and look anywhere without seeing a crane and that really does um, speak to this investment and this development that we're seeing in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And a lot of it is driven by, again, to kind of circle back, this imbalance between supply and demand. So there's been so much focus and migration to Texas and Dallas-Fort Worth specifically. But uh, just to kind of a- add some numbers to this, uh, the Supply and demand mismatch has prompted rents in the DFW area to grow by an average of 18.5% year over year. And, um, you know, that that rent growth may slow down, but uh, it's still expected to outperform other metros in the foreseeable future. And uh, another- Wow, Scott, just just scanning the article. So another stat, the multifamily occupancy rates are pushing 97 97%. 97%. This is a perfect storm where, again, you've seen incredible price appreciation. And normally Mm -hmm. when I see that kind of price appreciation, I think, okay, maybe this market is hitting a top, right? But when I see the occupancy is at 97%, I'm saying, okay, these are strong fundamentals. And if anything, obviously this metro area is still undersupplied with housing. And when you figure uh, the, the population of the DFW area is expected to outpace the nation by about 250% yeah. for the next five to seven years. So it's just this odd situation. It's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, like off-putting to kind of a value investor like myself, uh, where the price appreciation is so substantial. And yet you say, well, it sure looks like this market has a ways more to run. Yeah, I know. I think there's, uh, especially from the investor perspective, some people ask, well, is this place overbuilt? Um, you know, are we going to reach that point where there's just too much uh, capital flowing in and we're going we're gonna to reach that point? And the numbers seem to suggest that we're, we're not there um, we're certainly not there yet. Um, the, the demand is still there. And when you talk about those occupancy rates, I mean, that's just the, the concept of, hey, if you, if you whether it's ground up development or you have a value add uh, asset there, it's going to fill up if you're, if you're doing it right. It's going to fill up. You're going to um, you know, have that occupancy, those targets, and you're going to stabilize if you are building in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so yeah, and, and, and Scott, I, I also have to throw in, and, and this is probably a good transition to our next articles, which we got some spicy ones here. Uh, <laughs> we got some spice. Towards the end. Yeah, we got some spice. But uh, Senior Vice President of CBRE, Kevin O'Boyle, mentions in the article, Texas is a landlord-friendly state. Yes. Gives investors assurance that the properties will continue uh, to garner income. So, you know, we're not talking about rent control in the DFW area, like we might be talking about rent. I mean, Scott, forget about rent control. We went through 2020 and uh, parts of 2021 where landlords just couldn't evict people. Wouldn't, yeah, weren't able to collect rent. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. just absolutely incredible. So it's kind of one of those things. And this, this isn't a political show, but if you're a multifamily investor, 
you may not want to get political, but politics are going to come find you. You know, at least that's what 2020 and 2021 showed us uh, in terms of landlord law and just the ability of owners of these assets to, you know, stay viable. Um, And and so I think it's interesting that that, that, you know, five years ago, I would have said, of course, you know, landlord friendly state, that's an important issue that's going to be in like my top five, top seven things to consider when selecting a metro to invest in. But I feel like that's shot up to top of the list. Like, you know, for- Andy, I, I have I, I speak to many uh, multifamily investors, um, both on my show and 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 offline. And, you know, I've spoken to many investors that say that's that is my number one. And I refuse to invest in a state or metro that isn't landlord friendly, because I think a lot of folks um, were shocked by what happened, you know, during the pandemic and, and during all these uh, these these rules that were put in place where, you know, you couldn't evict someone, you couldn't, um, nor could you do it if they weren't even paying rent and, and folks that, uh, who weren't paying rent, even if they didn't have financial hardship. So I think that, uh, that really is a huge factor for a lot of folks. And so when they're looking at metros and when we talk about, you know, the DFW area, that's just a big factor. It's this factor of, okay, well, I know if I invest in a project here that, uh, I'm at least going to be able to collect rent and uh, and run the project and, and yeah. evict people that aren't paying, et cetera, et cetera. Scott, I will say, and, and I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. I had a recent guest on the Alternative Investment Podcast mention that when he sees so many people line up on one side of a trade, that it makes you wonder if there's a trade on the other side. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, I I, I think that's, that's something worth considering, right? And and I, I can kind of see both sides of an argument, but what that brings me to, I think some of these other municipalities are aware of this issue. Uh, this other headline, and, and this is a little bit of spice now, uh, you covered on your show, this is one of my favorite episodes. This is kind of when your show really hit its stride. I, I think uh, this episode was like your most downloaded episode at the time, at least. I remember I was talking about it. It was creating mm-hmm. a lot of buzz. Uh, but this uh, good cause eviction bill, which I was, was, by the way, I'm not again not to get too political. I love the how they named that the good cause eviction bill. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that's New nice. York, the New, friendly, New, happy, loving bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, the state legislature has declined to pass this, and it looks like looks to me like the governor wasn't interested in just. Um, uh, it, it didn't really gain any traction and, and maybe, you know, the folks behind the bill that are really pushing this are, aren't giving up, but it at least is going to be tabled for now. So could you give us just a little bit of background on what this bill was? Right. So this bill essentially, um, you know, it was, uh, it had a lot of flowery language, um, wanted to tackle some, you know, potential problems, um, you know, maybe more uh, landlords that would be um, just evicting people because uh, for nefarious reasons or, or things that would sound on, on its face of, yeah, that's a problem. We need to address that. But when you kind of dug through it, uh, it, it did really uh, amount to another type of rent control, which um, for folks who are familiar with New York City, New York City has had rent control issues for decades upon decades. And 
So this bill really was another way um, to, you know, the goal is and, and um, proposed by some politicians whose interest was, oh, let's let's really protect, um, you know, renters. Let's protect folks um, because there's these landlords out there just throwing people out on the street. But um, in my interview with Sherwin Belkin, who's a real estate lawyer based in New York City, we really dove into the problems of this bill and how it creates more problems uh, than it would solve. Uh, first of all, the bill itself was not worded very well, um, that we would create a, a bit of a, a legal log jam just mm -hmm. as soon as it were uh, in theory passed. But then there's that aspect of that rent control. And anytime you talk about rent control, you're really restricting supply. And when we talk about the uh, supply and demand mismatch of multifamily housing across the country, and it, which is even more uh, more pronounced in places like New York City or San Francisco and other areas, you're really making it more and more difficult for new supply to enter because, you know, investors, developers, people that would be landlords, uh, why, why enter this market, this land with, with rent controls where it's unfriendly to being a landlord and where you're going to have a harder and harder time, um, you know, getting your uh, investment back and, and seeing those uh, increases that uh, you need to see. Um, so it really, really did kind of strike at the heart of that. And again, couched in this flowery language of like, of course, why, why wouldn't we want to uh, make sure that you could only evict someone for a good cause? Well, speaking of the other side of the trade, I mean, this, th this to me is, is good news for the state of New York. And what it says to me is that some of these states, uh, and including legislators uh, and uh, governors and executives, are understanding that they don't want to be perceived as a state that is totally hostile to landlords. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, that's just going to disincent future development and it's going to cause, you know, it's going to exacerbate their shortage of affordable housing. Now, there are some localities like San Francisco comes to mind where the structural or political environment is just, it's so toxic that they can't get anything done, any traction, but at mm -hmm. least to, to the credit of New York State, um, you know, it sounds like the, the sponsor, the supporter of this bill, quote, called out the governor here and the assembly speaker and the state Senate majority leader uh, and they basically <laughs> just didn't even re respond. Uh, so I actually think that's that's good news is that, you know, some of these states are realizing that people can move. Not, not only can residents move down to Florida, but capital is mobile, too. Yes, th those that capital is going to flow somewhere and uh, it's going to take a right turn and head right down to Florida or head down to Texas. <laughs> so let's talk about Florida. So now this is this is a curveball, Scott. So we talked about rent. Rent control is a topic I'd normally associate with New York. And so some new rent control ideas got shot down in New York. But this last link that you sent me, we're seeing it discussed in Orange County, Florida. Right, which has Orlando. That is where Orlando is located. And I was actually recently at an Adisa conference um, uh, last month, actually, uh, in Orlando. And uh, there's a lot of discussion, you know, 
in this very episode, we've been talking about these uh, rent rates increasing in such a significant way. And uh, a lot of folks are are saying, well, what ca- can that continue? And so then you have this political pressure that builds of, well, we need to make sure. Yeah, that- Scott, with the, the number here, Orange County rents are averaging a year over year increase of 29.22%. And I have to say, I mean, I don't think rent control is a good idea really ever, but when you're seeing year over year increases of, of 29%, I mean, you can see why people would start calling for it because it's just like, it's, it's kind of an out of control situation for a lot of residents. and, And that sort of strikes at the heart, uh, in, in a lot of ways of, we talk about this migration and a lot of folks moving to these uh, smile states and, and the cost of living, the lower cost of living is a big piece of that as well. And so when you then look at the rents increasing, that sort of uh, torpedoes that a bit. And so I think there's a lot of pressure that can build and say, well, this isn't sustainable. We need to do something. Um, and you know, you look uh, the commissioner, Emily Bonilla, she called for a temporary rent control, uh, meaning properties with four or more units can't raise rent higher than 5% or the 12-month average of the CPI, whichever is lower. So again, yeah, okay, temporary, this is the potential proposal here, but uh, still pretty significant. And so I can see where this pressure is building, even in a a quote-unquote red state, um, because these, these prices are so significant. But then I circle back to what does that really what does that really do? And, and, you know, I'm of the mindset of you're just that you're putting a bandaid and making the problem worse. Really what it means is we need more cranes in the air. <laughs> we need more, we need more housing. The supply well, and, is not meeting the demand. And frankly, I think what we're also seeing is some of these other States realizing that we need to compete with Florida, whether that be in terms of having a more developer friendly climate, more landlord friendly climate, more business friendly climate, and so on and so forth. So I, I think in the long run, these these pressures have a way of easing, you know, in the invisible hand of, of uh, you know, the economy and, and, and developers chasing returns and investors chasing returns. It works itself out. In the short term, there is a lot of human pain with that, which I, I definitely uh, empathize with. Of course. And, and so I just hope that, you know, legislators and policymakers that you know everyone can kind of do do the best they can without initiating policies that are going to be disastrous in the long term without initiating policies that are going to make the situation worse in the long term and so I, scott i think i think i want to end with that is is you know i i, I think multifamily investors alternative investors you know, if when you're investing in development or value add across the United States, I mean, in a very real way, you're putting your money to work in something that is helping create supply. It is needed. It, it is absolutely needed. And, and so that, that's a good thing. Uh, but man, this has been an interesting year. I mean, it seems like we're, we're about halfway through the year, I think this episode is going to air in, in the second or third week of June. We're about halfway through the year, and boy, it seems just uh, a lifetime ago, uh, January first of twenty twenty two. Even in the real estate market, like wow, so much has happened since then. But for our listeners, if you weren't able to follow along on video, uh, make sure to check out our show notes. So all of these links 
that we discussed on today's episode will be available at altsdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform if you haven't done so already. Uh, That way you will be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Scott, thanks again for coming on the show today and giving us the multifamily update for 2022. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Andy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 